Have you ever encountered a self-centered person? After an online search, I found numerous signs of a self-centered person. Listen to these and see if you have met one. Self-centered or self-absorbed people often dominate conversations and relationships. They often lack empathy and are inconsiderate of others. They often take more than they give. They often are controlling and want things done their way. Often, self-centered individuals use manipulation to get their way. They often refuse to receive or respond to feedback. They're often quick to blame others and avoid personal responsibility. They often consider themselves entitled and think rules don't apply to them. They often want to be the center of attention. And the last one, they often treat every personal interaction as a competition to be won. Now, despite recognizing traits embodied by the average politician, have you encountered one? Or worse, have you discovered that you are one? And how does one become self-centered? Person's upbringing, personal trauma, past rejection, cultural influences, and even mental health issues are seen as possible contributors. The trouble is that the vast majority of people are influenced to be self-centered through their worldview. You don't have to be a sociopath to be self-centered. You simply need to see yourself and your needs more important than the needs of others around you. Your worldview is how you view life around you, and it can be influenced by so many things in your life. I've always attempted to live my life in service to others. Unfortunately, that's not how I always approach life. While I want to think of others first, I must confess that my first reaction to a situation is to consider what's best for me, or what do I want to do, or what do I feel is right, or finally, what will work best for me. And here's my biggest problem with this issue. I carry self-centeredness into my spiritual life. I want God to work for me and make my life as easy as possible. I want to be able to enjoy His blessings as I see fit. All too often, I expect Him to show up if I find myself not enough to handle a situation. My natural tendency is to start with, I want, rather than what God wants. Have you ever struggled with keeping God first in your life instead of focusing on your wants and your needs? Of course you have. We all have a natural tendency to focus on self. Our worldviews can be influenced greatly by our flesh and the culture we live in. Both our flesh and our culture encourage us to look to ourselves first. Our culture encourages the individual to focus on self-health, self-care, and self-focused living. Some have gone to the extreme of stating that there's no greater service than service to yourself. So why is focusing mainly on us not helpful and even destructive? In the Bible, we read Jeremiah 17, 9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? According to God's word, your heart is deceitful and can deceive even you. According to the Bible, following our heart in its focus on ourselves 
is a recipe for disaster. Your own heart is sick and isn't the answer to experiencing self-healing and self-care. So here's the guidance we need to hear from God's Word. Proverbs 3, 5-7 Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord, and turn away from evil. Instead of a focus on I, me, or mine, the wise choice is to trust in the Lord and follow the path He lays out for us. If we don't follow that prescription in life, then it will be almost impossible to turn away from evil. And yet, the influence of our culture encourages us to trust our hearts, focus on ourselves, and live as we think best. And while the world is saying, focus on yourself, it's also working to strip all influences of God and His Word from your life. We're not the first generation to face this problem. Every generation since Adam and Eve has faced this challenge. The very first sin was predicated on Adam and Eve placing their wants, needs, and desires above and beyond God's desire. Listen to Genesis 3, verses 6 and 7. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Sadly, every generation since has struggled with self-centeredness. In the book of Judges, we see a nation following themselves and attempting to meet their needs their way rather than trusting a loving, caring God to lead them and meet their needs. In the final three chapters, we see the consequences of focusing on self rather than focusing on God. In these three chapters, we see the evil, the heartache, and horrific consequences of spiritual compromise. The main point is this, self-centered living will ultimately hurt others. No matter how well-intentioned a person is, a self-focused life will eventually hurt others around them. And more often than expected, that self-focused life will be self-damaging as well. In Part 1, Chapter 19, we will look at the individual consequences of rejecting God and His Word and instead focusing on self. In this chapter, we will see the pain and anguish experienced by a family because one chose to live for himself. Often, news reports talk about crime statistics, and soon, those statistics become simply numbers on a spreadsheet rather than people facing great hurt and suffering. In chapter 19, part one of this message, we see how self-centeredness hits at the individual and family level. In part two, chapters 20 and 21, The story will continue as we see the horrible consequences extend to a nation. The final two chapters of Judges provides us a window to look into the nation of Israel and witness the consequences of their spiritual compromise. The story will go from the evil of one city and the murder of one individual to the death of thousands and the suffering of hundreds of thousands. As we begin we should be reminded again about the political and spiritual condition of the nation of Israel during the time of the judges. That spiritual condition is found in Judges 21, verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. 
everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We know from earlier chapters that God himself wanted to be king. The following is what happens when a nation or a culture rejects God and places themselves on the throne. And when God is rejected, people suffer. When anything and everything is acceptable in a culture and in a nation, pain will follow. We begin with Judges chapter 19, verses 1 through 4. In those days, when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him, and she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah, and was there some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her, to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys. And she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay. And he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. What can we learn from these verses? First note this. The Bible says, In those days when there was no king in Israel. Once again, we are reminded that God wanted to be the king in Israel. Unfortunately, God has been rejected by individuals and the nation. We also note that the woman is called a concubine. The concubine in that period was basically a second-class wife, and the man was seen as both husband and master. Genesis 2 verse 24 identified marriage as between one man and one woman. The practice of having a concubine was yet another indication that God's people were rejecting God's laws. And the Bible notes that she was unfaithful. This can be interpreted as adultery or the act of leaving her husband's home. Nothing in the passage suggests that she was sexually unfaithful. She is the one who leaves and that is identified as being unfaithful. Now, why would a second-class wife want to leave her master? Undoubtedly, there was a reason for this woman to seek shelter with her father rather than her husband. And note that he waited four months to bring her back. This is not a sign of a healthy relationship. After four months, he went to go get her when he realized she wasn't coming back. And so we read in verse 3, Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. Again, if she had been sexually unfaithful to him, why would he want to speak kindly to her? The Hebrew law was clear about the penalty for adultery. Upon his arrival at her father's house, the Levite was welcomed by the father and enjoyed three days of celebration. Judges 19, 5-8 And on the fourth day they arose early in the morning, and he prepared to go. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread, and after that you may go. So the two of them sat and ate and drank together. And the girl's father said to the man, Be pleased to spend the night and let your heart be merry. And when the man rose up to go, his father-in-law pressed him till he spent the night there again. And on the fifth day he arose early in the morning to depart. And the girl's father said, Strengthen your heart and wait until the day declines. So they ate, both of them. 
And thus on the fourth day the Levite attempted to leave, but was talked into staying another day to eat and drink with the father-in-law. On the fifth day he delayed his departure till the afternoon. Verse 9. And when the man and his concubine and his servant rose up to depart, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold, now the day has waned toward evening. Please, spend the night. Behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here, and let your heart be merry, and tomorrow you shall arise early in the morning for your journey and go home. The father-in-law encouraged him to stay one more evening and then leave early in the morning. In hindsight, that would have been the wise thing to do. Judges 19, 10-14 But the man would not spend the night. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jebus, that is, Jerusalem. He had with him a couple of saddled donkeys, and his concubine was with him. When they were near Jabus, the day was nearly over, and the servant came to his master. Come now, let us turn aside to this city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners, who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. And he said to his young man, Come, let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night at Gibeah or Ramah. So they passed on and went their way. And the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. Finally, the Levite was unwilling to stay another night with the father-in-law. And thus, he began the journey late in the afternoon. After traveling five miles, the Levite, his concubine, and his servant arrive at Jebus. The Levite rejects the counsel of the servant and decides to continue the journey. His decision was probably based on issues of safety as well as prejudice. He probably thought to himself, you just can't trust those foreigners. Judges 19 verse 15. They stopped to go in and spend the night in Gibeah. The Levite went in and sat down in the city square, but no one took them into their home to spend the night. And so we see the party traveled on to Gibeah. This was to be a, quote, safe city to stop in because it was inhabited by fellow Israelites of the tribe of Benjamin. The expectation was that the Levite and his company would be graciously received by a local resident into their home for the night. In the town square, a passing citizen would see them and provide the travelers a place to stay for the night. Contrary to the cultural mandates of hospitality, the Levite was not welcomed by the citizens. Soon we will see the reason why no one wanted the Levite and his small traveling party in their home for the night. Judges 19, 16-19 And behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field at evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning in Gibeah. The men of the place were Benjaminites. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, Where are you going, and where do you come from? And he said to him, We are passing from Bethlehem and Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, from which I come. I went to Bethlehem and Judah, and I am going to the house of the Lord. But no one has taken me into his house. We have straw and feed for our donkeys, with bread and wine for me and your female servant, and the young men with your servants. There is no lack of anything. After arriving in Gibeah, the only one to show concern and offer hospitality was not a Benjaminite. 
He was from the tribe of Ephraim, currently living in Gibeah. The old farmer, tired from a day of labor in the field, approached the group and asked a few questions. Where are you going? Where do you come from? The Levite doesn't explain the reason for his journey, just the basics. First, we're traveling home to the house of the Lord. Second, no one has shown the expected level of hospitality. And third, there would be no cost for hosting them because they have their own provisions. All they were requesting was shelter. After hearing the Levite's story, the old man is quick to act. Judges 19.20 Peace to you, said the old man. I'll take care of everything you need, only don't spend the night in the square. The old man offered complete hospitality to the travelers. His offer included an ominous warning not to spend the night in the square. Judges 19, verse 21. So he brought him into his house and gave the donkeys feed, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. Soon everyone in the house is enjoying the generosity and comforts of the old man's home. The animals were fed, their feet were washed, and they were enjoying the evening rest. But the darkness of debauchery and degradation would steal their enjoyment. It is Sodom and Gomorrah all over again. God's people are now acting no different than the men of Sodom. Judges 19, 22-24 As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, Bring out the man who came into your house, that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Behold, here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. Simply put, the men of the city wanted to rape the Levite who was the guest in the old man's home. The man is horrified. The Levite is terrified. To this point, we clearly see a distinction between the actions of the men of the town and the old man and the Levite. But the response of the old man and the Levite will provide another sign of the moral collapse of the nation. The old man recognized the evil intent but instead of simply condemning their actions, he addressed them as friends and called upon them to honor the custom of hospitality. Here's what he said, basically. This man is my guest. Don't do anything to him. And thus, the old man was possibly against the assault because the man was in his home. We're left to wonder if he would have stood against the assault if the man was still sitting in the city square. At this moment, the night has certainly turned dark, but it's going to get darker. Next, the old man offers his young daughter and the man's concubine as substitutes. He said, violate them and do with them what seems good to you. He is offering the men of the city heterosexual rape instead of homosexual rape. Offering his daughter violated his responsibility as a father. Offering the concubine violated his responsibility as a man. When the principles of God's word are rejected, it becomes okay to put women in harm's way if it will protect the men. 
there's really nothing fair and equal about the treatment of women when the men are looking out for themselves. There is no dad that I know of would make this offer. There is no man I've ever met would make this offer. It is hard to comprehend the darkness of this man's heart. He is all smiles and welcome into my home. But when facing the pressure of his neighbors, the darkness of his heart and his perverted morality are now on full display. He was willing to sacrifice two women to protect his guest. Why not offer the servant of a man? The neighbors were asking for a male to rape. Quite possibly, he saw the women as property and thus less valuable. The creation account makes it clear that both men and women have great value because people are created both male and female in God's image. Genesis 1.27 So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. Now we must ask, can the story get any darker? It can and it will. Judges 19 verse 25 But the man would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they finally let her go. When confronted by the crowd, it was the Levite who acted. With great courage and personal sacrifice, he stared down the mob and threw his wife outside to the pack of rapists to save himself. The man was a coward. And what happened to her? And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. There is no evidence the Levite or the old man tried to rescue her or even be available to help her to survive. Judges 19, 26-28 And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning and when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying on the door of the house, with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. Finally, when the crowd finished raping her, she managed to get back to the door of the house her husband spent the night in. The husband had decided to consider her a loss and had gone to sleep. In the morning, he didn't leave the house to find his wife. Instead, he arose to simply head back home. Seeing her collapsed on the doorstep, his first reaction was, Get up, let's go, instead of kneeling down to take care of her. Unfortunately, by this time, it was too late. She was dead. When she refused to answer or move, he callously threw her body on his donkey and set out for home. There is no mention or sign of real remorse or sadness at her death. Judges 19, 29-30 And when he entered his house, he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her, limb by limb, into twelve pieces, and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. Finally reaching home, we see the Levite is not grieving the loss of his wife, but upset at the affront to his honor. 
Instead of honoring her in death, he horrifically butchers her body and used the pieces of her corpse as a national call to arms. The Levi wanted action against Gibeah, not simply for the treatment of the woman, but probably for the loss of his property. And when a culture turns to sin, it takes greater and greater violence to get people's attention. What would have shocked the people a generation ago, simply the news of a woman's death, now would not make the front page of the paper. But putting pieces of the body on display grabs the attention of the sin-saturated culture. The reaction was immediate. Such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. What was Israel to do when confronted with violence and death? We'll find out Israel's reaction in part two. But right now, what would be your reaction to hearing that kind of news? What would you want your national and community leaders to do? What would you do in response? The challenge you face in answering those questions is that you need not look to ancient history to see the damage that is caused by rejecting God's counsel. We see the damage of rejecting God's counsel daily if we keep up with the news. And what are our options? We can keep our head down and hope the storm passes. We can express outrage in private or public. Or we can address the real need in our lives, the lives of our friends, and our community. The temptation we face daily when analyzing current events and determining our response is to walk in step with the crowd at school, at work, or with the members of our community. It's much safer and easier to sit back and complain about events than it is to actually do something to help others. The Apostle Paul challenged the church in Rome in chapter 12, verse 2 of his letter. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. God's will is not for us to live a self-centered, self-focused, self-pleasing life. We are to obey the command of God's word and follow the example of Christ himself. First, listen to the command voiced by Paul in Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And now in the next verses, we see Christ's example. Philippians 2, 5-8 Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It is made clear in God's word that Jesus, while always walking in God's will, placed the needs of others above his own comfort. You have probably heard of the acronym JOY. J-O-Y. It's a reminder to put Jesus first, others second, and yourself last. 1 Corinthians 10:24. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. I want to conclude this lesson with this challenge. Ask God now to show you a need in the life of a neighbor, and then 
meet that need. Instead of looking at someone and how they could meet your needs, ask God to show you how you could meet their needs. Your care for another, when done according to God's will and for God's glory, will be a wonderful testimony of God's care and love for that individual or a couple or even a family. Instead of spreading darkness, you can spread the light of God's love to your street, to your apartment complex, to your community. To wrap it up, in chapter 19, we saw how the rejection of God by a nation impacts a city, a family, and even individuals. Coming up in part two, we will see the reaction of the nation and the resulting turmoil. Sadly, the pain and hurt will only be multiplied as a nation without God reacts to the news. I'll close with this reminder. History is clear. When God is rejected in a person, family, city, or culture, anything goes. And when anything goes, self-centeredness follows. And self-centered living will ultimately hurt others. Thanks for listening to Discover the Bible with Dr. James Harms. I'm glad you found the podcast, and I hope you will give a positive review and even share with a friend. If you would like to learn more about being a follower of Christ or have questions or comments about the podcast, you can contact me through email at discoverthebiblepodcast at gmail.com. If you are new to the podcast, then I encourage you to check out the other episodes. The Book of Judges is a start of a verse-by-verse discovery of truth that will help equip you to stand firm on biblical principles in an upside-down world. Coming up in the new year, I will begin a verse-by-verse analysis of the book of Revelation. This series will explain what the Bible teaches about future events, including the rapture, the tribulation, and the coming judgments. Thanks again for joining me in this verse-by-verse discovery of truth found in God's Word. As always, I consider it a privilege to share the truth of God's Word with you.